Well, today uh, we have a special treat here at Santa Cruz Baptist. Um, my friend Mike Abendroth is going to be preaching for us. Uh, Mike graduated from the Master's Seminary, and he also has a doctorate in expository preaching from uh, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Had, had to get that in there. Um, Mike has been pastoring Bethlehem Bible Church outside Boston, Massachusetts since 1997. Um, he's written numerous books and even made an appearance in the movie American Gospel. Uh, if you have not seen those movies, I highly encourage you to go watch them. Uh, they're fantastic. They're, they're really helpful movies, uh, but, but he's in it, so that's exciting. <laughs> um, but more important than all of that, uh, Mike is a godly man, and he's a, a husband and a father, and I'm proud to call him friend. Uh, he loves God and God's word with a passion, uh, and today Mike is going to be heralding the gospel to us from Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. So I'll invite you to come up and preach for us, Mike. Thanks for being here. Thanks. Would you do my funeral? <laughs> well, before we get into the message today, greetings, uh, Santa Cruz Baptist Church. I'm here for lots of reasons. Uh, I'm here for the Lord's Day worship, uh, but I'm also here because I want to support your pastor and uh, lots of people across this county uh, call themselves pastors, but who will teach the Bible verse by verse, showing you Christ Jesus every single week. Not many, that's a rarity, not just in this county, but in this state, and matter of fact, in this country. So I hope you're encouraged to have a pastor like Drew. While Kim and I are on vacation here this summer, this is where we intend to be, uh, to worship with you, but also to try to encourage Drew and his ministry. And so. Uh, I don't know how often you encourage Drew. Um, I can't say this to my congregation, hey, encourage me, uh, but I can say it to you. It's a very discouraging thing because we have to deal as pastors with our own sin uh, and our own family sin and yet alone everyone else's. And so lots of things can come into a pastor's life that discourage. So maybe this week you could think, how could I encourage my pastor and his wife and then follow through with that? Sound good? All right. I'm going to ask for a raise of hands there, but we'll do that. Will you do my funeral? <laughs> I might. <laughs> for those of you that have physical Bibles, if you just let them kind of open naturally, I wonder where they would open to, right? One of the, the books of the Bible, maybe like the Psalms, where you think, oh, just this inspired song about who God is. Maybe you just let it open naturally to the book of Hebrews, uh, Christ Jesus portrayed from the Old Testament in the book of Hebrews. Maybe the book of Revelation is your favorite. But my Bible uh, opens today to Romans chapter 1. Uh, it's not my Bible, so I had to put a crease in it for sake of illustration. <laughs> but I'd like you to turn your Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 1. And we're going to look at verses 16 and 17 this morning. I think it was Spurgeon who said, you know, you open your Bible and you begin to read passages and they all shout out to the pastor, preach me, preach me. I'd like to be heralded to the congregation. And certainly this passage is familiar, but it's very important for us to go over. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. 
Romans is a favorite, not just of yours and mine, but of many others. Listen to some of the comments about the book of Romans from scholars throughout the ages. This is the profoundest piece of writing in existence, one man said. If any minister wants to strengthen his people, he can hardly do better than to give them a massive dose of Romans. William Tyndale, who died translating the Bible into English, including Romans, said of Romans, No man verily can read it too oft or study it too well, for the more it is studied, the easier it is. The more it is chewed, the pleasanter it is. And the more groundly it is searched, the preciouser things are found in it. So great treasures of spiritual things lie hid therein. That makes me want to study the book of Romans. I don't know about you, but it's an exciting book. It's fast-paced, 16 chapters with a lot of doctrine, but it ends in certainly practical application and doxology. One more quote, Luther. Romans is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word, by heart, but occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. It can never be read or pondered too much. So today we're going to look at Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, which hopefully will lead you to an encouragement, trust in the Lord. If you're here and you're not a Christian, it will drive you to trust in the Lord Jesus, and it will end with that doxology in Romans 11. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Bow with me, please. Father in heaven, we look to you as our great creator, sustainer, and father. And we would ask by the power of the Holy Spirit today, by his illuminating power, that you would help us to understand the good news of the gospel, that we might be quick to proclaim it to our friends and neighbors and quick to rejoice in it, that you, the God of the universe, would love people like us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's what we're going to do today for an outline. We're going to look at a series of several questions that will help you figure out what this is all about. Maybe a reminder for some, but a good reminder. So let me ask you, I usually say several questions to my home congregation because then if I don't finish them all, then the next week I pick it up. But I won't be here next Sunday, I don't think, to preach. And so let me give you nine questions this morning. Nine marks, right? Nine questions designed to help you think through this passage so you could understand Romans 1, verse 16 and 17 better. Nine questions. And by the way, some are shorter than others. Some are longer than others. If you look at the first three and say he spent 30 minutes on the first three, we're going to be here for a long time. That's bad calculus. Uh, uh, because I'm just going to go faster sometimes and slower sometimes. The longest sermon I ever preached on a Sunday morning was 92 minutes. You say, why 92? They had a little thing called cassette tapes. They were 90-minute cassettes, but they were really 92 minutes back in the day, 46 minutes on each side. And the pastor said, you preach your heart off for 46 minutes. If the people are still paying attention, go like this. The guy in the sound room will switch the cassette around, put it in, and hit record. So here we go. <laughs> 
I want you to understand the passage better so you can rejoice in the Lord. Nine questions about Romans 1, 16 and 17. Question number one. What is the theme of the book of Romans? What is the theme of the book of Romans? And voila, it is verse 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous or the just shall live by faith. I think it's fair to say that those two verses contain the summary of the book of Romans. I think they're actually the summary of the book of 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians. If you can understand the gospel of God demonstrated by his righteousness, you understand Paul. You understand Peter, of course, as well. But the theme of all the book of Romans, sometimes people say 16 chapters. There's some difficult things in this book. How can I kind of wade through it? This is the lens, the gospel of God found in Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. This could be Paul's summary of his entire theology concisely. Question number two. What should your attitude be regarding the gospel? What's the theme of the book of Romans? The righteousness of God found in the person of Christ Jesus. What should your attitude be regarding that? What does Paul say? Some say, well, Paul didn't get to Rome. He didn't want to be there because he was ashamed of things. Here he says very directly, don't you like this? For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Paul says, I'm not ashamed. I don't know if you're like me, but I love figures of speech. You might say, well, what's a metaphor or a simile? Um, this is something called a lidotes. It's kind of a fun one. How many people learned about lidotes growing up? L-I-T-O-T-E-S. Pronounced lidotes. And it's saying something in the negative fashion to bring out the positive truth. That's a lidotes. If I'm not ashamed of the gospel, that's the negative way to say it. Positively, how would I say it if I was Paul? I'm proud of the gospel. I'm excited about the gospel. I'm encouraged by the gospel. I won't shrink declaring the gospel. And in a world that's full of plurality, calling us narrow-minded, bigots, that exclusivity of Jesus, you mean to tell me that Jesus is the only way and if I don't trust him, the world is selling all this and Paul says, but I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not going to back down. I mean, when Paul got to town, it's been joked that he asked for two places. Number one, where's the jail? Because he'd be there eventually. Uh, but also, where's the synagogue? Because he wants to take the Old Testament scriptures and show people who the Messiah is. And for this gospel, the person and work of the Lord Jesus, Paul had been stoned, jeered at, uh, cursed. They tried to kill him. They laughed at him. And Paul said, I don't care if you think I'm a fool or not, but I am proud of this gospel. I'm confident of this gospel. I love this gospel. You can think of people uh, on the cross next to Jesus and they're shouting at Jesus, you saved others, you can't save yourself. Come down and we might believe in you. You can think about how offensive that is that the Messiah would die on the cross. Paul said, I love the gospel. If I was in Santa Cruz, California, I'd say something like this. I'm stoked for the gospel. <laughs> That's what he means by I'm not ashamed. Theologian B.B. Warfield said, a dozen ignorant peasants 
proclaiming a crucified Jew as the founder of a new faith, bearing as the symbol of their worship an instrument which was the sign of shame, preaching what must have seemed an absurd doctrine of humility, love to enemies, graces undreamed of, to worship the one who died like a slave and making what must have seemed an absurd promise of everlasting life through one who had himself died and that between two thieves. I could ask you the question, are you ashamed of the gospel? Are you encouraged by the gospel and want to proclaim the gospel? Be excited about it? I mean, the backdrop, you say, well, you know, our day in Santa Cruz is kind of, you know, it's pretty contentious with this gospel. Well, how about back in the day even of Rome? You know, they used to say about Christians, they're cannibals. Why they say that? Because Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. You know, they, they have this communion thing and they, and they drink wine and bread and it's like this cannibalistic thing. That's what they do behind those closed doors. Nothing's changed in our society these days. Oh, they have something called the love feast. And the love feast, they'll have this dinner and there's all kinds of sexual things going on and, and kissing one another and all these other things. Yet Paul said, when I came to you, brothers, 1 Corinthians 2, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided, I determined ahead of time to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. One of the reasons why I love this church is you are not afraid to proclaim the riches of Christ Jesus. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Question number three. What is the gospel? That's a good question. What is the gospel? If the theme of the book of Romans is the gospel or the righteousness of God, and we're not to be ashamed of it, what's the content of the gospel? If we had more time, maybe I'd pass out a piece of paper to each of you and say, write the gospel out briefly. Some would probably say Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Some might say it's a good kind of music. Some might say it's some kind of good news. I wonder what Paul would say if he was handed that card. He says in verse 16, does he not? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. What kind of gospel is he talking about? Did you know that 82% of Americans believe what Benjamin Franklin wrote? God helps those who help themselves. They think that's in the Bible. That comes from medieval times when there was a slogan, God will not deny his grace to those who do what's in their power. If I had to ask you the question, what's the gospel? I wonder what you would say. Would you say, well, it's summarized by what would Jesus do? It's summarized by the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. It's be nice, be good, have purpose in your life. Be a spiritual person. Have a relationship with God. Be baptized to feed the poor. Speak in tongues. Say the sinner's prayer. Make Jesus your Lord. Have a personal relationship with Jesus. Love God. Love neighbor. Are any of those the gospel? I wonder, what is the gospel? Well, the word gospel means what? Good news. That's right. And S. Lewis Johnson used to say, it's the kind of news you want to stand on your tiptoes to say. <laughs> I remember, you know, you call your mom. It's a girl. My wife just had a girl. Or you say, victory over the country that we conquered. You know, let's say uh, Germany or Japan. S.O.S. Johnson used to say, Reagan in a landslide. That's good news. That was quite old. 
One writer said it signifies good, merry, glad, joyful tidings that makes a man's heart glad and makes him want to sing, dance, and leap for joy. It's good news. It's a proclamation, and it's about a person. When you hear the word gospel, I want you to be thinking about who Jesus is. It's good news about a person. Just like if we say, I have faith, what you're saying in a shorthand way is, I have faith in the risen Savior. And similarly, with a gospel push, we're a gospel-centered church. We like to talk about the gospel. We're talking about a person, the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus. Now, if you go back up to chapter 1, verse 1, Paul has given us some information about the content of this gospel that he refers to in verse 16. Let's take a look at this gospel. Romans 1, 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart from the gospel of God. The first thing we notice about the gospel there is, it's not our gospel. It's good news from God and about God. It's not ours to tamper with, but to receive, to herald. This is about who God is. And by the way, while it's news, it's not new news. What do I mean by that? Verse 2 which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Oh, this is interesting. It's news, but it's not new news. It's old news because the Old Testament proclaimed this truth, did it not? And you could even think about a God who saves, a God who saves in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Is it new for Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? If you go back to the Old Testament, even back to Genesis chapter 3, you'll see some echoes and hints of the good news. I mean, if I think about uh, the whole swath of redemptive history, Adam and Eve sin. God kills an animal and cloaks Adam with that animal because there's sacrifice, one animal for one man. And you move forward in redemptive history in Israel and there's Passover and there's one animal slain, not for just a man, but for a family, Passover. And you move a little bit farther in redemptive history, and something called the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, where the animal is slain not just for a person, not just for a family, but also for a, a nation. And then finally you get to the very Gospel of John, and he looks back and says, let me show you John the Baptist. And John the Baptist says, remember, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the, not just a man, not just a family, not just a nation, but of the world, Jew and Gentile, this is the savior of the world. And it's not new news. We have a continuity from the Old Testament to the New Testament. You could read Psalm 16. You could read Isaiah 53. We see that we have not a break from the Old Testament, but a consummation of it. You read about brazen serpents put up on poles. And you read about feasts and sacrifices and all kinds of things pointing you to the New Testament Christ Jesus. And even if you look down at verse 17 of Romans, our passage today, Paul cites an Old Testament passage. The gospel's good news, but it's not new news. He cites Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous shall live by faith. You are very familiar at this church with John chapter 5 and Luke 24, that the Old Testament speaks mainly of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul said in Acts 28, that it was said of Paul that he testified to the kingdom of God and tried to convince them about Jesus, both, both from the law of Moses and the prophets. 
Verse 3 of Romans chapter 1, we, we see more about the content of this gospel. It's certainly good news. It's, it's not simply new news. It's, it's old news, but it's concerning his son. This is the content of the gospel. It's about the Lord Jesus concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh. Isn't that interesting? Why did Jesus, the eternal son, have to add human nature, have to add humanity? Answer, because he had to be our representative. Remember the book of Job? Job's asking good questions, what you should look for in the rest of the Bible. And he said, you know what? I know I'm sinful, and here's what I need. I need somebody to put his hand on God and then put his hand on me and be like an umpire or a referee to help us to be reconciled. That's what I need, Job said. And of course, that's what we see in the humanity of Jesus and the divinity of Jesus. He's able to, as it were, to put his hand on the Father and to put his hand on us because he's truly God and he's truly man to identify with us and be our representative to be our mediator. Jesus came in the flesh, incarnation. The word became flesh and he dwelt among us. Did he not take the form of a servant? Was he not made in the likeness of man? Truly assuming a real human nature with all its weaknesses except for sin. This is the humanity of Jesus. But not only that, we see the deity of Jesus. Look at verse 4. And he was declared, that word declared there is the word where we get horizon. You look at the horizon and you see a demarcation, you see a dividing line. Sky, earth, middle line, the horizon. This is the defining moment. What's the horizon to be the son of God in power? I mean, he's the eternal son of God, but what's the, what's the climax? What's the defining moment showing that Jesus is not alone truly man, but in addition, he's truly God? Answer? For Paul, it was the power of According to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus says, it is finished. And the father said at the resurrection, you'll be raised. So when Paul talks about the gospel, he's talking about something that God did, the triune God did in the personal work of Jesus 2,000 years ago. Now here's the question. Some people are saying to me, Mike, you know what? A lot of people never read the Bible. They never read anything about the gospel. So you need to be the fifth gospel. Now, I kind of know what they're saying. I want to live a holy life, that's certain. But can you imagine Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Mike? <laughs> and to be more technical, the gospel according to Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ according to Matthew, the great news about God and the gospel it's about him. It's about him. Could you give the gospel without mentioning yourself? That's a good test. Can you give the gospel without saying, you know what, I've got a changed life and I'm different and all that. I'm happy you're different. I'm happy you have a changed life. But you can do that with medicine. You can do that with all kinds of things. But here we have something that's about a historical man. I think of a good gospel Proclamation, behold, I give you good tidings of great joy, for unto you this day is born in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. While the law says, I'm a sinner, the gospel says, Jesus Christ 
came into the world to save sinners. Can you imagine God in Christ Jesus has forgiven you? If you're a Christian, you're, you're forgiven. You're reconciled. When you die, you get to go to heaven. You deserve hell. I do. And you get to go to heaven and you go, yeah, that's okay news. This is good news. It's not what I must do, but it is freely offered, proclaimed the person and work of the Lord Jesus. Now, there's a theologian maybe you've heard of. His name is Casper Olivianus. How many people have heard of Casper Olivianus? I call him Casper the Friendly Olivianus, <laughs> if you're old enough. Not Casper the Ghost, but Casper the Friendly Olivianus. Here's how he talks about good news. Although we are unworthy, all of our sins have been washed away and pardoned, not just for the rest of our lives, but indeed forever. He carries out this promise by giving his son to die for us and by raising him. Since Christ did not in his, die for his own sin, because he did not sin, but for ours, and he arose out of the same sin as a mighty victory, it follows that there is not a single sin of ours for which he has not paid. It's not how good I must be after I'm a Christian, my piety or my merit. It's all of God. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. And back in verse 17, if you scroll down a little bit or move down to verse 17, it's not just Jesus dies for my sins, although that's wonderful news. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now think about this for a second. Um, I, I have a, a lawnmower, a rider lawnmower years ago that I, I had. I don't have it anymore. And it only had kind of like neutral, reverse, and forward. So Adam is in neutral, he's in the garden, and he is told to obey God. Certain things he should do, certain things he shouldn't do, and he's told to go in to forward, first gear. Adam in the garden, in neutral, hears those words from God, and of course we know about his fall, and Adam, without even putting the clutch in, jams it in reverse, and off he goes, right? Now, to have those sins forgiven, and I believe Adam's sins were forgiven because God killed an animal as a sacrifice in place of Adam. Adam has been forgiven, and now he's back to neutral, right? But he's still required to obey. Why did Jesus not come down on Friday, die, and go up on Sunday? Answer, because God expects us as humans to perfectly obey the law, to do what he says. We're creatures, and creatures should obey. And so God has Adam, told, Adam's told by God to go forward. Adam goes backwards. He pulls out the cord for the speaker. Um, let me just put that over here. <laughs> he's forgiven, but he still needs to go forward. And so you say to yourself, what's that moving forward? It's called doing the right thing. And right thing means righteousness. And so Jesus lives a perfect life of obedience or righteousness. And so when you trust in the Lord Jesus, he has paid for your unrighteousness. And now also he lives for you and gives you his righteousness. Because righteousness just means to do the right thing. Right? Right. One man said, the righteousness of God is that righteousness which his righteousness requires him to require. 
And then Jesus, the righteous one, perfectly obeys the law. So now when God sees you, dear Christian, he sees no sin. I'm, I'm talking about right now. He sees no sin that you're going to have to pay the penalty for. You say, well, I do still sin, and God may chase me for that as I live my life. That's true, but in terms of justification, in terms of uh, position before God, no sin. And he sees you as perfectly obeying every command in Scripture. So I don't want you to ever say to yourself, well, I had my devotions, and, uh, and I did what I was supposed to do this morning, therefore God loves me more. Or I've sinned and God loves me less. You're in Christ Jesus. You have all his righteousness. He's paid for your unrighteousness. And God couldn't love you more. He couldn't love you less. I mean, Luther hated this idea. The righteousness of God. God requires perfection. I can't do it. If anybody could be saved by their monkery, it was me. Luther said. But then I realized it's not just God is righteous. He is. But he gives righteousness. He's given you his righteousness. That's good news. That's really good news. The Heidelberg Catechism says, God without any merit of mine, of mere grace, grants and imputes or credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, as if I've never committed any sin and had myself accomplished all the obedience which Christ had fulfilled for me. And I think that's good news. I think that's excellent news. We sing about that good news, do we not? When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. We also sing, no condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Question four. Why is the gospel so powerful? Why is the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ, so powerful? It says in verse 16, back to our passage, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Why is it powerful? Because it can take people who are on their way to hell and guarantee heaven. Death to life. It conquers death. Jesus conquers death. From condemnation to justification. It's powerful. It does its, its job. And that's why I'd like to be godly. I'd like to be holy. But when I'm preaching the gospel, I want you to know that even though you don't live a life perfectly and commensurately uh, 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 with the gospel of Christ Jesus, it's got the power, not you. Power manifested through preaching. You think about, remember Diana of Ephesus, that false god? I mean, if you've ever seen a picture of Diana, it's too gross for me to even describe to you what she looks like. And they're all bowing down, great as Diana of Ephesus, great as Diana of Ephesus, great as Diana of Ephesus. Who can change these people who are locked into idolatry? Who can change these people who are locked into sexual sin? Who can take these people who are locked into drunkenness and drug use and everything else and all of a sudden make them different and change them and make them new and make them alive and regenerate them? It's a proclamation about a person. 
Calvin said, whenever the gospel is preached, it is as if God himself came into the midst of us. Like I'm, I'm preaching to my buddy and my friend, my mom, my sister, my, my, my daughter. I want them to get saved. And I, I'm not really very good with apologetics and I'm not so sure about all this stuff. And you tell them about the person and work of Christ Jesus, the one who loves sinners. And we heard today in the um, a confession of sin and then assurance of, of pardon that he demonstrates his own love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's like God is there and you proclaim the gospel. It's called power. How did God make the world, by the way? Here's how he made it. This is my shorthand. World. And he speaks it into existence. Do you know in 2 Corinthians? It says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, that's creation language, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You see what he's doing there in 2 Corinthians 4? Just as God said by divine fiat with power, world, it goes into existence. When God at his sovereign pleasure wants to save someone, he does it through the preaching of the gospel, through a frail people like us, and then it is, you're a Christian. How does God make a Christian? You're a Christian through that power. Maybe my favorite story is Spurgeon told the guy that was preaching. He was a liberal preacher. He was a mainline preacher. He wasn't even a Christian. He thought he'd better preach this passage about who Jesus is, and he's a mighty Savior. And uh, he began to listen to his own, old, his, own, his own sermon. And Spurgeon said he was preaching a sermon that he did not understand, and while he preached it, he converted himself. <laughs> <laughs> By God's grace, the account says he began to feel the power of the Holy Spirit and the force of divine truth. He so spoke that a Methodist in the congregation called out. I mean, if a Pentecostal calls out, that's one thing. But Methodists calling out? Remember, they sit on their hands. That's what a Methodist means in Greek. Sit on your hands. The Methodist cried out in the congregation, the parson or the pastor is converted. And so the parson was. And they all got up and sang, Praise God from whom all blessings flow. I mean, if I go back and say, hmm, the person that preached you the gospel, how smart were they? Did they know about Van Til apologetics or the different ways to talk to people? Or were they just maybe an old grandma, an old grandpa, a friend at the beach, and they told you about a mighty Savior? It's powerful because it's God's word. When somebody says, well, you know what? These people in church history, they did some really bad things. Therefore, we ought to cancel them because they did bad things. I, I have news for everybody here. We're all canceled because we've all done bad things. We're fallen people, but we talk about the one who's not. That's why I love your pastor. Because we're not going to talk about ourselves. We're going to point to another one. Because if you talk about yourself for long enough, A, people get it, and B, they see you're not the Messiah. So let's point to the Messiah regularly and often. <coughs> Question five. How do you receive the good news? How do you receive the good news? Verse 16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who, and here's the key, believes. Verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith 
as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The gospel good news is received by faith and faith alone. Whatever you offer to God must be perfect. And faith looks to the perfect Jesus. If you say, I'd like to get to heaven by good works, they better be perfect works. Say, I'd like to get to heaven by baptism, it better be a perfect baptism with perfect motives. God requires perfection. Matter of fact, uh, what are those little marshmallow things uh, during Easter time you always see that are in the shape of a chicken? What are they called? Peeps. I want to redeem peeps for you. They have pizza now. They put peeps on pizza and all that stuff. Forget all that. I want you to think of peeps as an acronym. Perfect, entire, exact, perpetual. Perfect, entire, exact, perpetual. If you'd like to get to heaven based on your own good works, they better be perfect, entire, exact, and perpetual. But since we can't do that, we need a Savior who perfectly obeyed the law, entirely obeyed the law, exactly obeyed the law, and personally or perpetually obeyed the law. And you receive his work by faith, by faith alone. If you say, well, what do you mean by faith? Probably the best thing you could do for faith is to just think, think of these three components of faith. Knowledge, you have to know about it. You have to know about him. Ascent, and I don't mean like climbing a ladder, ascent. I mean ascent like I agree. And trust. Knowledge, ascent, trust. K-A-T. Knowledge, ascent, and trust. I didn't say commit. I didn't say surrender. I didn't say treasure. I didn't say desire. Faith alone. I didn't say clean up your life ahead of time and then come. There's nothing antecedent or before faith. It is faith alone. You're not acceptable to God for anything you've done, but only who Christ Jesus is, and you receive it by one way and one way alone through faith. And even Paul, and he says in verse 17, from faith to faith, do you see it? Some translations say one thing, some say another, but I think it's a figure of speech. It's a good rhetorical way to say it's nothing but faith. The ESV says, from faith for faith. It just means you want to be in a right relationship with God, it's all about faith, nothing else. Romans 3, 8, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And even this faith you've been taught at this church isn't your own faith, you didn't come up with your faith, no man comes to me, Jesus said, except the Father who sent me draws him. Even faith is a gift. So I'll ask you the question. Today I have talked to you about who Jesus is. The only way to receive his benefits is by faith. Do you believe? I'm not asking you, do your parents believe? I'm not asking you, well, this is what this church teaches. I'm asking you, do you believe? Do you have the knowledge of Jesus? Yes, you do. I've told you today, and so has your pastor. I, I, I think it's true. I give assent to that, and I'm trusting. I'm trusting that I'm going to die one day and stand before God, and I'm all in. If this is a lie, I'm going to hell, because there's only one God-man who can be my representative and substitute and conquer death by resurrection, and, and I'm all in. If Jesus is in the way, I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to go to hell. I'm all in. I'm trusting Faith is so wonderful because it has nothing to do with, well, my faith has to be perfect. My faith can't be perfect because I'm sinful, but my 
object of my faith can be perfect. And faith, in a way, connects us to this great Savior. Faith doesn't merit anything. It receives. Faith didn't live a perfect life. It didn't die on the cross. It didn't become raised from the dead. It receives the work of the Lord. And the only other option is if you want to try to get to heaven by doing good, it's going to have to be perpetual, entire, exact obedience. We know that can't happen. Because why would God the Father send the Son if we could get to heaven by being good? Go to Romans 3.10. This is why we need to believe is because we're all sinners and we only offer sin and we stand condemned. There's, there's no option. For it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. Are there any exceptions, Paul? No, 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 it says in Greek. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Look at verse 19. For we know that whatever the law says, and the law says perfectly obey, it speaks to those who are under the law, that's us, we're creatures, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Isn't that interesting? Somebody's an unbeliever and you begin to tell them about God's requirement. Perfectly love God. Perfectly love neighbor. You're giving them the law. Showing the reflection of who God is and his character in his law. And they're like, yeah, but what about this and what about that? You just keep giving them the law more and more and more. Until finally verse 19 happens by the Spirit's power. Every mouth is shut. And the person that you're preaching to says, well, if you're right, I have no excuse. I have no comments. You mean to tell me that the creator of the universe made me? I'm supposed to obey him. I now stand at the judge's bar and I say to myself, I'm not guilty. Lloyd-Jones said, you do not become a Christian until your mouth is shut. Until you're speechless and have nothing to say. Put up your arguments and produce all your righteousness. Then the law speaks and it all withers to nothing. And we here as Christians have understood that that's exactly what has happened. Because by the works of the law, verse 20 of Romans 3 says, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Question six. Do we have different gospels for different people? Ask Drew sometime, what's your plan to reach the millennials? What's your plan to reach the skaters in Santa Cruz? What's your plan for the surfers in Santa Cruz? What's your plan for this? Guess what? I don't think he has a plan. <laughs> he has no plan. Pastors don't have plans how to reach different people groups because from Jews to Gentiles, poor, rich, male, female, slave, free, Jew, Gentile, already mentioned it, florists, policemen, yuppies, Gen Xers, they all need the good news. Matter of fact, it says in verse 15, does it not? So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. That's how we lead into verse 16, 4. That's what he was trying to say. I can't wait to get to Rome, a city full of incest, sexual sin, slavery, abortion, social crimes, injustice, and I'm here. And I'm going to bring my big guns to this city. By the way, if you would like, as a Christian, to serve people in Santa Cruz in any way, shape, or form, you may do that. But the great commission of this church is the great commission, and that is proclaiming the gospel. There's not two commissions. 
the cultural mandate, and the commission of God. There's one great commission, and that great commission is to tell people in a city like Santa Cruz, which was like Rome, could be slaves there, could be social problems there, could be plagues there, could be all kinds of issues there. I have good news for Santa Cruz. And you go, how's that going to work? I mean, that's what my flesh wants to say. Really? That's the good news? Except it's the power of God because it's like God himself is there proclaiming the truth. Lloyd-Jones says, let the church of God concentrate on the Great Commission and not waste her time and energy on matters outside her providence. Up-to-date, new, marketing, friendly, must-read, fad-driven. No. We are under sola scriptura, not as David Wells called, sola cultura, culture alone. There's a lot of solas these days, aren't there? Sola Scriptura, Sola Fide, Sola Gratia, Sola Christus, Sola Dea Gloria, Sola Homeschoola. I mean, there's all kinds of them. <laughs> sola Bootstraps, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And now here's another one, Eight Solas of the Reformation. When I want to cry, I like to read the biography of John Payton. It'll make me cry more than any other biography of a Christian man and his wife. He's sent by a church to go preach the gospel to cannibals. He doesn't speak cannibalese or whatever their language was. But he was given a little communion kit in anticipation of the Lord's powerfully saving the cannibals. Peyton, for the first time from the Dorcas Street Sabbath School teacher's gift from the South Melbourne Presbyterian Church was put to use. A new communion service of silver they gave it in faith that we would require it, and in such we received it. And now the day had come and gone. For three years we had toiled and prayed and taught for this. At the moment when I put the bread and wine into those hands, once stained with the blood of cannibalism, and now stretched out to receive and partake the emblems and seals of the Redeemer's love, John Payton said, I had a foretaste of the joy of glory that well nigh broke my heart to pieces. I shall never taste a deeper bliss till I gaze on the glorified face of Jesus himself. How did that happen? What was his social mandate? It was the cross. It was a person, the Lord Jesus. And now quickly we have three more and we're gonna just speed through them. Number seven, what are the results of the gospel? What are the results? Love, works. Charity, benevolence, love God, love your neighbor, fruit. They're not the gospel, but they're fruit and evidence. Obedience. Faith alone saves, but your faith won't be alone. God doesn't need your faith. God doesn't need your works, but your neighbor needs your faith. Question eight. What happens if you reject the gospel? If you're here today and you've heard the claims of Christ that he freely forgives sinners and you say too bad what happens if you reject the gospel revelation 20 hear these words then i saw the great white throne and him who was seated on it from his presence earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them and i saw the dead great and small standing before the throne and the books were opened then another book was opened which is the book of life and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. 
And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of, the fire, the lake of fire. If you're here today and you reject the gospel, that's your end unless you repent. And then finally, number nine. Does the gospel strengthen believers? I mean, it saves us. That's true, but does it strengthen us? Go to chapter 16. I love the bookends of Romans. Chapter 1, it talks about the gospel. Chapter 16, it talks about the gospel. And the gospel not only pardons, it gives us power. And so we end with Romans chapter 16, a great chapter to remind you that you are motivated even for holy living by who Jesus is. I love this doxology. It probably summarizes the whole book. It's a very long doxology, very important theological doxology. And he says in Romans 16, 25, does he not now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. Hey, wait a second. I thought the gospel saves us, forgiveness of sins, paid for, reverse, back to neutral, and then we have the righteousness earned by Jesus forward. We get that. Well, well what about a motivation to obey as a Christian. Right there it says it strengthens. That's where we get the word steroids. It gives us strength. One time I was preaching in North Hollywood at night uh, doing this radio, uh, the TV show in this like Harley Davidson garage and there was filming and everything and I was talking about uh, the call to repentance and a siren went by and we didn't have very good studio. And so it was very loud. And I said, you hear that siren? <laughs> you hear that muffler? Okay, think about this for a second. You got a GPS. You got your car. The GPS is like the law. Good job. Go forward. Or turn around. Told you you should have turned left. <laughs> but it doesn't get you anywhere. So if I tell you, husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. Church, go evangelize. That's good and right, but it's like a GPS. The law doesn't have any power. It doesn't animate. It doesn't get me there. So why do pastors have to talk about the Lord Jesus all the time and not just to be saved, although that's good? Because the motivating force, and he isn't a force, of course, but the motivating force personified, it's, it's the engine of the car that gets you there. When I counsel people, Nine times out of ten, it's a Christ Christological problem. Because they want to obey. As Christians, we do want to obey. We're sorry when we don't. But how do I get there? And Paul says, you get there strengthened by who Jesus is. The gospel doesn't just save, although it does. But Jesus, if you think about the reformers, the power and the penalty have been taken care of by Jesus. You get double benefits of Jesus for pardon and for power. I could, I could put it this way. What, what would motivate you to obey? I have two options. Pastor that scolds you all the time with the law. I can't believe you don't do this congregation. You never fess up and you never do this and you never do that and you never do that. How do you call yourself a Christian? Or let's say, 
if I say something, if I have my son, many of you have met Luke. Luke, you know, you're kind of messing up these days. I don't know if you should call yourself an Avendroth anymore. I don't know if you're my son. Let me give you a few tests to see if you are. Or if I said to Luke, Luke, I, I love you. I have one son, and it's you. We prayed for you. We love you. Everything I wanted in a son and more, I see in you. Which one's more motivating? Unless you're a drill sergeant in Korea, I think it's this one. I say that because my dad was a drill sergeant. And you think, you know what? A God who would love me like this? Don't you want to obey him? Not, Not to be saved. Not to stay saved. But if anybody loved you like the Lord Jesus says he loves you, well, what do you do? Spurgeon says, when I thought God was hard, I found it easy to sin. But when I found God so kind, so good, so overflowing with compassion, I smote on my breast to think that I could ever have rebelled against one who loved me so and sought my good. Did you know if you wanted a secret to the Christian life, Horatius Bonar said, it is his continual recurrence to the blood of the surety Jesus Christ and his daily communion with a crucified Savior. Because how are you going to obey God if you think he's mad at you and he's always there to squash you? God loves you. He loves you in Christ perfectly. And you say, if anybody could ever love me like that, and you tell me to lead a church, Pastor Drew says, and I have to do what Titus 1 says, I'll gladly do it as response. I have to go evangelize people. I I will do that because the Lord Jesus loved me. St. Clair Ferguson, the ability to focus our gaze, fill our minds, and devote our hearts to Jesus Christ is the basic element in real Christian growth. Inability to do so is a sign of immaturity. And that's why Paul ends with the gospel as well. Dear church, I want you to be reminded that the most important truth in all the Bible, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, is that Jesus Christ died for your sins, was raised from the dead, and he's coming back. And I think that's good news, don't you? Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time and your word. Bless these dear saints and their pastor. In Jesus' name, amen.